Uh, all right. Welcome back, everybody. This is episode 12. My name is Stephanie Hicks, and I'm here with my co-host, John Michelli. We are the Corresponding Author Podcast, where we talk about all things academic data science. In the last few weeks, we've been covering specific details related to jobs in seeking faculty positions, for example, in data science types of departments or centers related to the types of things you would put into an application or the things that you think about or do on a job interview. So we decided we're going to take a break from that for a little while and go back to more data science-y type topics. So I think if I understood correctly today, John, you and I are going to talk about deep learning and AI. Is that correct? Yep. Sounds about right. All right. And and this comes from, I think, a paper that came out that you were telling me about in breast cancer, was it? Yeah. So Google just put out a large um, paper that talks about breast cancer and mammograms and how it can improve over uh, uh, individual readers or even multiple readers, but really assist in radiologists and other uh, clinicians reading the images. And I think it's a fantastic paper. It's very well done. It's very well validated. Uh, but I just kind of wanted to bring up some of the issues I found in reviewing some papers on artificial intelligence and specifically deep learning um, that have kind of frustrated me in the past couple of months. So, okay. So what kind of papers do you review for? What kind of journals do you review for? So one of the journals that I've been reviewing for lately is called Radiology AI. So radiologists do a lot of different things, but one of their primary roles is to read scans. So for example, CAT scans, CT scans, uh, MRIs, PET scans, things like that, which they look for specific things or anomalies or pathologies that are potentially problematic for the patient. So for example, they might look at bleeds in the brain or just brain scans to determine if there is anything wrong with them. So if someone comes with a headache or you know concussion, they might take a look at the scan make a determination whether they see there's anything problematic and then send that information back to the uh, caring physician, things like that. And artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, some of these tools have been coming out to try to assist or augment what the radiologist has been doing. I will say there, ha there was a comment, I'd say it'd be four or five years ago, maybe now that we should stop training radiologists and that AI was going to take their jobs. And I think, mm, yeah, yeah, I've heard similar things. Right? So I think <laughs> uh, that comment has been amended very much that now AI and deep learning and machine learning can be a very, very useful and effective tool to augment or speed up their rate of reading or uh, rate of return for a lot of different things. Okay. So, there was a lot of stuff in there that you said that I want to unpack. So how about we start with some definitions between machine learning, deep learning, and AI? Do you want to go first? Yeah. So I will go with the, uh, to me, the easier definitions uh, in that machine learning, uh, so deep learning, I would say, is a subset of machine learning, where machine learning is a, I would say, a automated system for a computer usually to learn some sort of rule or learn some sort of cost function or something like that. Like that might be random forest, regression, um, support vector machines, neural networks. And I think deep learning is a specific subset that's primarily focused on neural networks and a specific subtype where they have multiple layers. Some of them may be hidden, some of them may be not, and more or less 
there are a lot of layers. That's why it's called deep versus shallow, where there might be only a few layers in the data. And then AI, I don't right. know. What about you? Yeah, I definitely agree with you on deep learning being a subset of machine learning or deep learning being one type of um, area or model to think about for, for machine learning. But then artificial intelligence is much more fuzzy in my mind. And I think one reason for that is because if you, if you ask 10 people what is artificial intelligence, then you'll probably get 10 different answers. So, I mean, I think we can all agree that AI at its core is being able to tell a computer to perform tasks that normally a human would perform that would require some kind of like human intelligence, such as being able um, to um, recognize speech or being able to translate between languages and things like that. And so many, many AIs are powered by machine learning or deep learning, but then sometimes they're just simple rules. And so that's why I think AI is a little bit more fuzzy in my mind. What do you think? Um, I mean, I guess for me, there's a whole set of neurons that are inputs and then there are a whole set of different neurons at each layer. And it depends on how many layers down the data goes, either getting compressed or manipulated in some way. And, um, yeah, so I would say how many times the data gets manipulated or compressed or transformed in a way, I would say each one of those is a different layer to me. I see. Yeah, that makes – okay, but then – so how do you – what's the difference between artificial intelligence and deep learning then in your mind? Mm, I would say um, – that's a, that's a hard uh, question, but I would say AI is more encompassing than deep learning or, or machine learning in general because you can think of things where uh, voice synthesis or things like that where potentially you can have relatively semantic rules – where there's a lot of embedded encoding and things like that, where the computer returns things that look very much like human speech or human words, but it might not have been learned in the same way uh, via some data set. It might have been encoded by a set of rules or a system. So I think those don't fall under the machine learning aspect in the same way because I think most of the learning type of systems are data-driven things where they derive some insights from the data where there is a whole other set of uh, semantic rules and things like that that are a whole different type of framework that is still artificial intelligence um, in my mind, but it's not necessarily a learning paradigm. I will say though, I think you can kind of say artificial intelligence is a way is anything that tries to trick a person into thinking. <laughs> I like that it. definition, trying to frame artificial intelligence as just mimicking what would go on in a human brain. So can you tell me some, what does it mean to be, or to have a convolutional neural network? network? So generally you have an image or part of an image uh, for a whole bunch of different, usually different patients or something like that, where you can think of... You know, just think of them uh, as maybe pictures, but they all have around the same size. So they've been processed in some way where the images all have the same number of rows, same number of columns, and then that is fed into this network. And what it does is it estimates weights for each pixel 
of that slice of the image or that part of the image. And then it, it gets a weight for every single different image. So these, the number of parameters is very, very, very large. And then what it does is some sort of activation function, either a sigmoid or other things like that, where they say, I'm going to multiply this weight by the pixel intensity, and then I'm going to get some resulting number, usually uh, combining multiple areas of the image together. So that's called pooling. So pretty much different parts of the images, estimated a weight, and then you multiply them together, you pull them down to a lower dimensional number. Um, so you might have reduced like a, you know, a five by five grid of pixels down to a three by three grid, or maybe even smaller into one number. And that's done across the entire image. And there are ways you can skip or drop out different parts of the image. And then those numbers are pulled together um, with some summary statistics like mac the maximum so that is described as essentially max pooling and that creates one layer of the network and then another convolution is done on that smaller image and then maybe another convolution another convolution and one of the uh, fundamental and most commonly used frameworks for image segmentation so finding where something is inside of an image or saying that's where this is spatially is called the a vnet or a unet there are two different uh, architectures which essentially take the image have a, co a couple convolutions where it says multiply the image by this weight matrix pull it by something get smaller and smaller and smaller dimensionality it goes to a small dimensional space and then it expands it back out to create a probability map or a indicator map for where that structure is. So that is one type of framework in uh, convolutional neural networks that performs segmentation. And then there's steps for dropping out certain layers and things like that to make them more robust. And then there's a whole bunch of other things called data augmentation, where you can flip the image like left to right or up to down and things like that so that you can uh, increase the space of the data coming in because new data coming in might have weird features or it might be not exactly oriented the right way so that you can make the model robust to things like that. So that's that's a pretty common uh, architecture going on now in convolutional neural networks in medical imaging. Wow, that was great. Thanks for the explanation. That was very detailed. So, okay. So I have... So then maybe we bring it back to the breast cancer screening paper, now that we've talked a little bit about CNNs and deep learning. Um, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so I will say, again, the breast cancer paper is amazing, and I don't want to harp on that one as uh, having faults or anything like that, but one of the issues I have found reviewing a lot of these papers, especially because it's medical imaging, that the researchers cannot release the data because it's from a hospital and the, da the data weren't consented in certain ways where the data can be released, which I fully understand. But on the other hand, a lot of researchers also are not releasing any of the weights or the model fit from the artificial intelligence or the random force or things like that. A lot of these black box approaches, you need essentially to release the model itself, the full object to be able to run this on a new data set. And they're not releasing that for a lot of different reasons, whether it be, you know, it was in-house software or the model intellectual property. It's not very clear who that is, or they just are going to use this to create a model that they're going to sell to people, things like that, which I understand. But 
companies like Google and large organizations like that that are essentially for-profit companies, I understand. But publicly funded researchers, it very it frustrates me a lot to see a lot of papers like this because if I can't have your data, I can't have your model. And if you the third kind of trifecta is if you haven't released any code that you use to fit your model with your data, then the last thing I have is your method section to reproduce your results. And usually, overwhelmingly, that's insufficient to do so. So that's the right. frustrations I've seen from these black box approaches. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting. I'm flipping through the paper right now, and they state, for example, a pretty significant reduction in both false positives and false negatives of what they see in these images, both from data from the UK, the US and the UK. And so if I am somebody who works at a hospital, for example, I would be incredibly interested in knowing the details about how they got to that point of a reduction. What is the model that they built or trained to be able to see that reduction in both false positives and false negatives for the patient? So for me, that's very valuable if, I, if I'm thinking with my, like as a, somebody who works in a hospital who runs a hospital. So what types of details would you want to see in a paper? Yeah, I mean, they do have in uh, part of their method section some of the specifications for the neural network that they create. I will say it's a little bit frustrating because the real meat and bones of the methods of how they created some of these models is in the supplementary material and not in the main body of the method section, which... Um, I know a lot of people put the really nitty gritty details in there, but in some respects to me, it does seem to indicate that the um, true replication of these methods might not be at the forefront of what journal readers care about. And I, I would disagree with that. Um, but I understand like a company like Google might not be able to, but a publicly funded researcher at an institution uh, I believe should have a GitHub repo that has the scripts they use to generate the data, like uh, an open science thing. And I understand that I am a, a pretty strong evangelist for open science and open, um, maybe open data as well. But I will just say the big difference to me, and I know I'm coming back to your question of what I would like to release. If someone said I created a logistic regression that my model is 20% better than any other model out there for predicting, let's say, breast cancer. Mm -hmm. I and, and then I said, well, uh, sorry, I can't release those model weights, the regression coefficients. Right. I don't think people would accept that. Right. Yeah. So I think in some respects, these black box approaches, I, I you know, this is probably going back, uh, I don't know. 40, 50 years, but I wonder what it was like when people said, we fit this model and it was super great, um, but we couldn't, can't release these beta estimates or something like that. I don't know if that ever really happened in science or medicine. I have no idea, but that would be really interesting if there were a similar situation like that. Um, yeah, I'm flipping through the, the supplementary material now, and I agree, it is sparse to say the least. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah. And and the other thing I would say, um, on Twitter, I think there was a discussion uh, what the phrase data, data available upon request or software available upon request means to different people. Um, I can link to that in the show notes. But one of the insights I thought that was very interesting on both sides is that um, some people view that as 
somewhat of a cop out in the sense they're not going to ever really release their data because so many emails like that can go unnoticed or unanswered. Do you think there's a difference? And, between, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go on. Yeah. Do you think there's a difference between the expectations of what's released for um, an academic institution versus somebody in industry? Yeah, I, th- I think so. Um, I think so, depending on where the funding comes from. And also whether there's like patient privacy, I'm assuming that they have to respect. I mean, I, I mean, keep in mind. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that data releasing is easy, right? Because you need data usage agreements. Sometimes you need contracts. You need IRB approval for to release this. You really have to kind of keep tabs on it. And I can understand that that is a huge burden um, to put maybe on some researchers. But I have found even as a reviewer, uh, I've said, okay, can I, can I see the data? And the editor has kind of sided with the reviewers at times saying, well, why do you need to see the data? And, I'm, and I said, you know, if, if as a reviewer right now, you know, I have in some respects as much power as any reader is going to ever have um, over these kind of authors. And I don't see it as a power dynamic. I'm just saying I have enough influence as a reviewer to potentially ask for the data. And if I can't get it, what are the chances that an actual reader can? Right. Yeah, that is very true. So do you want to, so this reminds me of a story of like, so we're talking about why this matters. Why does it matter that we get access to the data? Why does it matter that we get access to the code and the models? This reminds me of a a story, which I'm sure you've heard about. I don't know if our listeners may have heard about the Anil Potty story from Duke. Do you remember the story? Yeah. Yeah. So, but you should probably give a rundown of it. Yeah. So in the world of genetic analysis, um, I think this was like back in 2005 or 2010, there was a researcher from Duke named Anil Potty, and he produced a paper stating that he was able to, um, using the genes that are being expressed in the human body, we could differentiate between, essentially have personalized cancer treatment. So he could tell you with um, a certain accuracy that if you had these genes expressed, for example, genes one, two, three, then you should receive this type of treatment. And if you had a different set of genes expressed, then you should receive this type of treatment, for example. It turns out um, after much, many years of investigation, much, much investigation between some bioinformaticians, Keith Baggerly and Kevin Coombs from MD Anderson, they downloaded the data from Anil Potty because they work at a cancer institute. So their collaborators at the cancer institute said, hey, this researcher from Duke can essentially identify what type of treatment somebody should be getting based on what genes are being expressed. And so that was really exciting to Keith and Kevin. So they, of course, went to go download the data and went to go download their code that... Dr. Potty used to um, come up with these personalized cancer treatments. And then fast forward essentially five or 10 years, I forget exactly how long it was. It turns out that there were um, many problems, not only with the data, but with the analysis itself. And then there were also some, fraud- some, also some fraudulent claims that were made. And it turned out that the, the code 
that was used to come up with these personalized cancer treatments. Um, and the ability to identify who should be receiving what treatment was essentially completely wrong. And patients were enrolled in clinical trials and actually given treatments that may or may not have been harmful to them. And so lawsuits were filed and many things happened. There's actually a whole 60-minute story about this. I encourage people to go read it. Maybe we'll link to it in the show notes um, as like one of the biggest medical research frauds ever. <laughs> it, it's quite a story. And so I think back to this example as motivation for why we do need to have access to, if not data, then at least models or the ability to investigate and reproduce the results that are coming out of this paper. I think that's for me why it's so important to be able to state that, yes, I think we can, like we as a community can all reproduce these results and we think this is a good thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And especially when it goes into anything with respect to patient care, patient diagnosis or um, anything with a clinical trial or a clinical aspect, I think you should be very sure that your data and your method or your method is validated on that. And that's that's the other reason I, I think of a very strong push for at least open software or really sharing your software or creating a software platform where people can use it because I've seen so many times I've I, I read a paper and I'm like, this would be great. I would love to try it on our data and like give some results or give some comparisons to what we've tried. And, you know, kind of advertise your method. I've seen a lot of people just give me radio silence, no response to the emails or, oh, we published it, but it's not ready. And then six months later, the same thing. And six months later, the same thing. And um, it's just very frustrating because I think you should know one way or the other. I think everybody who does the you know, research, they think their stuff is the best or it's really, really good or it's going to beat other people. And... I think mine's good, but I would love to put it out there and have someone try it on their data. And if it doesn't work well, then that is a great area that I can improve it or change it. Um, yeah, sometimes they're going to use it to just as like a punching bag and say, this person published some you know, method and we can totally beat it. And I'm like, that's fine. Then I'll use your method on my data as long as it may- gives me a better result for what we're trying to do. Right. And I just want to be clear. I'm not accusing anybody of making fraudulent claims here. I'm just giving an example of what goes wrong or what could go wrong. Had, I mean, in a worst case scenario, I, I do not think the authors of this paper, for example, are making any or doing anything wrong. I, I just think it would be really great if some of this, the results and some of the output from the paper were made more readily available. Absolutely. And I think the the thing is there have been pushes to, to try to make this happen in a lot of respects, like especially in the genomics world, you have to have your data deposited in certain areas for certain uh, in certain repositories for journals to accept it or even review it at times. And I think that's the right push. I just don't think it's happening as many places as we'd want it. But the interesting thing is I believe a lot of people saw that case and said, hey, Like we need to change. We need to change because of things like this. And if we let our software and our code to be more open, then this stuff is less likely to happen, which I think is true. But I think a lot of other people saw saw that and said, hey, the only real potential outcome of me releasing my code for this paper is someone finding something wrong with it. So I'm even less likely to, to release it. 
What do you think it would take for the AI community to get to that point that the genomics community got to? I mean, I think the genomics community did did it because the journals, the top journals that they publish in will not accept it otherwise. I don't know. I feel like even to this day, sometimes I see some things and I'm like, ooh, I really wish that were. But it is true. It's deposited in usually repositories that are guarded very heavily for good reason because for genetic privacy, but it also makes it very, very difficult for those of us that don't have access to those databases to get to. So, Yeah, it's interesting on the other end. I, I think it's an easier sell to maybe release your code than the data, like because usually as, as, as an analyst, I might not even have the authority to release that data and things like that. But, that's true. Yeah. That's true. It's So it's funny, like I think Genomics is is doing that. I don't know if they've solved the problem with respect to releasing like software, but they have a thriving open source community and places to deposit code. Um, so we've ju- we just are publishing a paper right now that's an artificial, you know, a deep learning network for, with a convolutional neural network. All the kind of things I'm talking about for uh, hemorrhage segmentation in CT scans. And I was very adamant with our team that the only way I kind of would participate in this is that we release the model weights. Um, so we have the code out there to fit the data. We can't really, we could potentially release the scans, but that might take a lot more time, a lot more energy, but to release the weights in the model. And so um, I'm happy to say that I believe we have um, from, from last week, I think the uh, first author did that, but pretty much. It, it was a struggle. It was a struggle to convince my, our team why that was necessary, why it was helpful. And especially, I think a lot of people see, I don't, I wouldn't say they see dollar signs, but they see potential um, products. That Are you might. thinking like patents or? See, the uh, at least when we've tried to go through the patenting process, uh, we've been told very much that algorithms and things like that are very hard to patent because any slight alterations or even more than slight alterations to your algorithm can result in a new algorithm. So therefore, um, things can move and mutate very easily and if and then they are outside of your patent purview. So I don't know if it's that. I think software as a service or you know licensing some of this software or some things like that where you have a cloud service and people upload their data there, it processes it down, uh, up there and gives you a report back. I think that's maybe something that people are, are considering. But I would really have people sit down and have a frank discussion as what is the probability that's actually going to happen. Yeah. So when you say you, for example, are going to make your model weights um, publicly available, how do you store that or where do you store that and where do you put that? Yeah, that's a, that's a big problem too. So let me, let me step back really quickly and say, what are the great things about deep learning? Um, Because right now like TensorFlow and other frameworks like PyTorch allow you to have a really, really complex and really hard, to, like almost impossible to code up yourself model uh, done in that framework, right? And Keras on top of it allows you to fit models at a higher level. So I think it's really great. And the fact that we don't necessarily need to do all this feature generation to create the segmentations and outputs and classification models is amazing. And also the fact that if it's Python and it's 
TensorFlow and things like that, it'll work on almost any system. So system dependencies, although it can still be kind of a drag, it can work. And the fact it can work in a Docker image is amazing. So I think the way you kind of do that is either you upload a Docker image somewhere, right, on Docker Hub, something like that. You can have the code probably on GitHub, but the issue still is storage of the model weights. And I would say with the size of them, they can be a gig or even larger. Mm -hmm. So some people have used Dropbox, some people have used Figshare and some other platforms like that, which allow for a much larger uh, file size than, for example, GitHub, which is primarily right. for code. Yeah. I always like to ask people that because it seems like there are a variety of different ways that you can host um, code and pre-trained models. Like the um, Model Zoo, I think, is one of them, right? You There's a website where you can go and discover deep learning code, but then also the pre-trained models that are associated with it. There's a similar model type zoo for uh, deep learning models in genomics that uh, one of my colleagues um, works with uh, from Stanford, he has developed. So I, I was just curious how you handle it. Yeah, I haven't heard of model zoo, but I'll take a look at it. It looks pretty interesting for pre-trained networks. Um, I'll have to see where the... Uh, models for, you know, ImageNet and things like that are published because there is a large repository of images that have labels and things like that. And that is one very thriving area of deep learning called transfer learning, where you build essentially a neural network that can quote unquote, see things in an image. And then you try to take that entire model and port it to a completely different kind of objective and see how well it works because the underlying assumption is that model can now see things. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Kipoi, or I'm probably saying this wrong, K-I-P-O-I. It's Model Zoo for Genomics. That was the other the database of deep learning models and pre-trained models that I was thinking about. Uh, it looks like Kipi or Kaipi? Kaipi? Is that it's, what it is? Uh, it's bad because it has a pronunciation on its main page. Uh, yes. It does? Where is it? Yeah. Oh. Okay. I'm going to have to look this up. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think. That... I feel so bad. My colleague Anshul uh, Kandaje is one of the developers of it, if not the developer of it. And so I'm so sorry, Anshul, if I'm saying this wrong. <laughs> well, it seems uh, very interesting. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes. But <clears throat> pretty much, I guess I'm saying that I think deep learning overall is allowing us to do some really awesome things that are very cross-platform and can, can, can even work on like phones and things like that um, with GPU computing. And I just wish I could see more people publishing their weights if, if it was possible, or at least having that discussion before kind of getting, getting to the submission stage and things like that, because I think it's great work. They make fantastic claims and I just want to see if they're true on some of the data that's already out there. That's true. Or be able to help people. Like if you are working with radiologists who are classifying um, cancer patients, breast cancer patients, you want to reduce those false positives and those false negatives. And so you may want to try this out on your own data. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited about the the future of this field, but it, I agree with you wholeheartedly that it would be great to have pre-trained models and or code available. Yeah, and I think I think the example from Google is 
a fantastic example of artificial intelligence that can be used to really augment radiologists and readers and allow them to do a better job because it showed that you can reduce the time where cases that might be a little bit more um, on the fringe or nebulous that it might not be clear which way it goes. It can actually, uh, using this model as an augmentation tool, can reduce the time a second reader really needs to look at an image, which is pretty fantastic. And, mm -hmm. and just their accuracy is increased. And I understand that their um, motivation might be a little bit different than maybe a researcher at an academic institution. But I think if you receive the research money to do all this with NIH money. And I also think if, you know, for example, some people, their NVIDIA cards are donated by NVIDIA for their GPUs. If you gave, if that was given to you, I would say as much as you can try to give back. Yeah, agreed. All right. Well, that's all I had. Did you have other things you want to add? Nope. We're undergoing some interviews of potential faculty, so maybe we'll comment on that in the next coming weeks. Yeah, that sounds good. All right. Take care, everyone. Bye. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at CorrespondAuth, or my handle is StrictlyStat, and Stephanie's is Stephanie Hicks, and you can email us at thecorrespondingauthor at gmail.com.